This week's episode is brought to you by you, the Communicore Cadets. Thanks for all you do. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And this is our season four finale. Isn't that insane, George? Four seasons. That's four a long years. time. Over four, well, not quite over four years yet. No, well, I mean, next week, the next episode you listen, it will be over four years. Then we can officially say we've been doing it over four years. We've been doing it five years. Wow. That's incredible. We That's can count that incredible. high. So we're good with that kind of math. But anything remember, beyond that. I can remember when we did the five-week anniversary episode. Oh, man. Remember that ridiculous song that we did? Oh, it was wonderful. Maybe I we should play that time. on the season five uh, premiere. Oh, we should. Yeah, because that was the first time I ever rapped. That was the first and only time George has ever rapped. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so don't go back and listen to it now. Wait till next week till you hear the rap. And we then just have to remember back. to play it next week. Okay, yeah. I'll try to make a note. Uh, setting a reminder... Yeah, well, already forgotten. Yep, pretty so. much. What were we talking about? <laughs> we were talking about going to the history segment, right? I Well, we might as well. Alrighty. It's time for Disney History! Although it's one of the forgotten areas of Disney's Hollywood studios, except during you know the massive holiday season, the Streets of America is more than just a passageway between Muppets and Toy Story Midway Media. You know, there really is a wealth of creativity in the alleyways all throughout it, and with it going away soon because of expansion, we thought we'd take a look at it. I thought you were going to say it's one of the forgotten areas, like the Disney Hollywood Studios. <laughs> Much like the entire park. <laughs> I was like, no! Okay, so... When the Disney MGM Studios opened in 1989, uh, it, it was a working studio at the time with lots of different productions going on. The Streets of America were part of the studio backlot tour and extremely popular. It was a two-hour attraction that was a walking and tram tour through the movies, which included an attack at sea, Catastrophe Canyon. Wow, Catastrophe Canyon. It's hard to say that. Apostrophe Canyon. Yes, Apostrophe Canyon for us grammar nerds. <laughs> and more. So the uh, the tram section of the tour took guests down Residential Street, which featured the facades of homes seen in movies and TV shows of the 80s and 90s, as well as New York Street, which was an early version of the Streets of America. I liked your little New York accent there for a second. Good job. <laughs> well, contractually, you know, the, the union said I had to say it like that. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, guests can enjoy the authenticity of the sets here, which include uh, a two-dimensional backdrop of the New York City skyline, uh, the Beau Arts Building, and a replica of Washington Square Park. Ultimately, though, the Backlock Tour was shortened in size and duration to make way for the Lights, Motors, Action, Extreme Stunt Show, and New York Street actually lost Washington Square Park to the new attraction. So, in 2004, the area did gain San Francisco Street, which intersects with New York Street. The expanded area was renamed to the Streets of America and opened to pedestrians as a connection between Pixar Place and the Muppets. And of course, during the winter months, it was also home to the Osborne family spectacle of Dancing Lights, a winter wonderland of lights and music. 
So, the streets of America are essentially a movie set, though. Uh, you know, the facades and all the numerous things that are filmed there really attest to that fact. Um, and one of the things that was filmed there early on was a short film called The Lottery, uh, which used to be shown during the Backlot Tour. And the film itself features Bette Midler as a voice instructor who has a winning lottery ticket, and she loses it in the streets of New York, and she chases all through the city to find it again. Um, and, of course, hilarity ensues. Yes, I love the movie. And the movie itself was twofold. It was entertaining, and it showcased to guests how lifelike the streets of America appear on the screen. In fact, they were so lifelike that, while, while they aren't actively used by major production companies, that sometimes students from the New York Film Academy use them for their projects. Just as a sign out, I remember when I, I remember they used to show the film first and we'd yeah. be like, why are you watching this? And then they'd be like, <laughs> by the way, here's where it was filmed. And you were like, whoa, mind whoa. blown. Bette Midler was here? What, she touched this lamppost? <laughs> weird so we don't need we don't need another restraining order no we don't no we don't no, no. <laughs> um as guests enter the streets of america they find themselves in the 1930s new york um the new york section is based on west 40th street in the heart of manhattan and structures along the street mimic those seen in the big apple including uh, brownstone apartments municipal buildings and even a branch of the new york public library Yay. And, you know, while it's tempting to look behind all the doors and windows, there are only shells constructed of fiberglass, styrofoam, and plywood, with all the intricate details added to create the illusion of a real city street. So, of course, the one location there that is not fake is the merchandise stand. <clears throat> Use guys merchandise. You nice, know, nice go work. figure. Yeah, I tried. So there's also uh, there's traffic sounds playing to further pull you into the fantasy of it being 1930s, New York. Uh, there are 30 style uh, city stoplights th that are along the street, as well as signs for the Statue of Liberty and Interstate 95, which crosses the city as it stretches from Maine to southern Florida. And there are even subway signs and taxi signs as well. So the subway station for uh, the lines W and D, of course, because duh, Walt Disney, um, <laughs> yeah. it, it all looks authentic as well until you start to head down the stairs and realize it goes right smack into a wall. Um, <laughs> but next to this subway entrance is a fire hydrant, which is a great decoration and also a great way to cool off during the summer months when it sprays people walking by. <laughs> so attention to detail and accuracy is prevalent throughout New York Street. The stained glass windows uh, facades facing the Chevrolet building, it, it displays three flags. The first is the Stars and Stripes, and the center features, features the goddesses Liberty and Justice on a blue field for the state of New York. And the final is orange, white, and blue, it's a stripe flag, with an emblem in the center, and that's the flag of New York City. And of course, in addition to all the, you know, real-world location, there are a bunch of Disney details as well, such as the Ventral Travel Services window, which obviously advertises Disney vacations and cruises, um, with a bunch of hidden Mickeys and other stuff in it also, you know, including uh, Five Like a Goats. Because, uh, mm. one, there's uh, the, the window of a piano shop uh, painted on the backdrop saying it opened in 1939, the same year of the Tower of Terror, not too far away when it was struck by lightning. And it's also the year the Walt Disney Studios opened in Burbank, California. And speaking of the backdrop, it's very, very impressive. So much that you might not realize they are all two-dimensional paintings and not actual buildings until you get up close to it. The New York backdrop's uh, prominent piece is the Flatiron Building with a glimpse of the Chrysler and Empire State Building peeking over the other structures. Though the real Empire State Building is over 1,400 feet tall, this one is just around four stories. 
So the backdrop is a great example of forced uh, perspective as well, which they use in many of the Disney parks, uh, with the windows and the features getting smaller as the building gets taller to trick the eyes into seeing it at a great height uh, that it actually is not. It's actually much shorter. And uh, speaking of buildings, one of them, uh, the few actually labeled on the backdrop, is called Amsterdam. Now, New York was uh, originally called New Amsterdam uh, until control of the area was ceded from the Dutch to the English in the 17th century. And why didn't they call it Old Amsterdam? I don't know. Uh, that's okay. Because there was an old Amsterdam. That was just Amsterdam. So that's this was true. the new Amsterdam. Okay. So the this name, though, actually goes a bit further. While there is no building called Amsterdam in Manhattan, there is a new Amsterdam theater, which is owned by Disney Theatrical Productions and sits on West 42nd Street. And it's currently the home of Mary Poppins and has been since 2006. So there is also a billboard for The Lion King, which has been running for a long, long time, just two blocks from the New Amsterdam Theater in the Minskoff Theater. And there are also other businesses along the street being advertised, such as Mr. Gold's Shop from Once Upon a Time, which in a way is another weird Disney connection since the 1988 film Oliver and Company opens with a song called Once Upon a Time in New York City. Coincidence? Maybe, but, you know, all the Disney stuff is connected. <laughs> so, but you also need to be sure to look uh, nearby for newspapers near the backdrop. It's where you'll find a stack of papers about Steamboat Willie. And if you look at the newspaper stands up and down the street, you, uh, you'll be able to see headlines relating to current Disney films as well. Subtle advertising, Disney. Well yeah. done. Well done. Yes. So running perpendicular to New York Street is San Francisco Street. And on this avenue, replicas of Edwardian and Victor uh, Victorian-style homes are, that are seen in the Bay Area uh, all lead up to the San Francisco backdrop, which features a high hill with the Golden Gate Bridge uh, gleaming in the distance. San Francisco is well known for its Chinatown area, and uh, San Francisco Street pays homage to that with a faux Chinese laundry, uh, Eastern Exchange, and Young Wo Ginseng Company shops, uh, advertised in both English and Chinese, and the China Bowl restaurant. There's even a phone booth with a pagoda on top. Have we tried that phone booth? I don't remember if we did, actually. We uh, have to check in. Not yeah. that it matters. It's going away soon, anyway. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. <sighs> anyway, down the street, there is a police car parked in the uh, behind the fence in the Jackson Street Alley. Uh, the phone number listed on the fence is a 510 area code, which is used for Oakland and other Bay Area uh, suburbs. And posted on the brick wall is a sign for Sal Salito Surplus? I don't know. Anyway, yeah. th that city of Salito is next to San Francisco, just across from the Golden Gate Bridge. Just like New York Street, the signs on San Francisco Street are native to the area as well. One has a seagull and the number 49, which marks the 49-mile scenic drive, which is a popular byway used by tourists passing through some of the city's attractions, such as, appropriately enough, Chinatown and the Golden Gate Park. There is another sign for Historic Highway 101, which takes travelers from San Francisco all the way to Los Angeles. And it was once known as El Camino Royale, or the King's Highway, and it was California's principal route from north to south and vice versa until the 1920s. And of course, you can also go singing in the rain. All right, I'll stop. Mm. <clears throat> I started to and I realized, no, I shouldn't okay, because good. we've got good, that good, good. issue. So, so uh, you can also go singing in the rain here as just around the corner is a streetlight with an umbrella attached to it where you can channel your inner Grace Kelly. 
While the area is no longer used as a filming location overall uh, for major productions, the streets of America are really, you know, a really cool thing to check out while you still can, while you're at your favorite half-day park, Disney Hollywood Studios. Um, really, there's nowhere else that you can travel from New York to San Francisco in like four seconds flat. And <laughs> it really is a great little snapshot of the studio's past and what we're missing out on these days. Yeah, as well as how the studio has grown, and I guess we'll call it Star Wars Pixar Town in the future. Yeah. So, <laughs> or something like that. But we would love to know if you have any memories of the backlot area, New York Street, San Francisco Street, all the changes that have been made. There have been so many of them. But give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424 785 4628. That's 424 785 GOAT. He's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his beat. It's George's book of the week. This week's book is Dolly and Disney Destino, the story, artwork, and friendship behind the legendary film by David Fossert. Okay, so. We covered Destino and the cal- wow collaboration between Walt Disney and surrealist Salvador Dali on episode 179 of this amazing show. And it's been a subject that's fascinated Disney historians for decades and most Disney fans since the release of the short film in 2003. So why is this film and the work done on it so important that it merits a book? And a pretty big book for yeah. a short cartoon. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it was definitely an interest, uh, a subject that was of interest to everyone, I think, especially um, this last year with uh, the exhibit at the Walt Disney Family Museum um, that they had over the summer. And obviously the book being released very recently after that. And mm-hmm. Dolly and Disney just kind of seem like an unlikely pair to be friends. Um, but they just struck it off really quite well. And it made for one of the strangest relationships in all of Hollywood. <laughs> Yeah, so if you're not familiar with the story, Dolly was hired to do conceptual and story work for an animated short at the Disney Studios. And he was paired with John Hench, and they worked for many, many months on the project. And the book, Dolly and Disney, looks at that specific time period as well as the events leading up to it. And it it does chronicle um, how the short was finally made, which is really fascinating. And there are some pretty amazing stories in this book i was surprised <laughs> yeah yeah uh, and i was i was very surprised i mean the professional relationship between uh the disney studios and dolly was pretty unheard of especially for the time um walt disney was a big fan of dolly's work and basically set him loose to create what he wanted to do um you know he obviously had to rate him in a little bit uh, which was uh, john hench's <laughs> job at the end of the day but the things he was coming up with were just off the walls crazy and it was just really interesting to see them you know him present them to the Disney Studios. Yeah, this this was such a different process for the animation studio and in turn for, for Dali. The studio was used to a, uh, a fairly linear production method and then uh, Dali would be more about spontaneity for what he was doing. And he often changed his mind about a scene or a part of the film on a whim. And it was hard even for Dali to nail down a specific storyline uh, especially with the sur- surrealistic art, story, and music that had been chosen for it. But it, it never seemed as if the partnership was actually a burden on Dolly or the studio. Uh, it, it was something that they all wanted to see come to fruition. 
I mean, unfortunately, it never did, at least during mm-hmm. Walt's uh, lifetime. Uh, but the film, uh, Destino, which was released in 2003, to, like, pretty good success, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, as weird and surreal <laughs> as we kind of all wanted it to be. <laughs> um the book does an amazing job of covering the entire story from start to finish, and you know one of my favorite parts of the book was having facsimiles oh. of the original script replicated, so we can see what Dolly's original, uh, in, you know, intention was. Yeah, some of it was still uh, just boggled, yeah, boggled ridiculous. the mind. So, the the book really does an incredible job of documenting the process and the history of Dolly and his art. You know, I was surprised at how much I learned about Dolly and surrealism. You know, the, the amount of concept art presented is, is astounding. And it's the, they actually present the history of the artwork as well, which is neat. And, you know, every time I read about the art that they have in the archives and the animation morgue, I'm really overwhelmed with the, well, I, there's not a really good term. It's like the rarity of the collection and how important it is. It's almost priceless, you know? It, it is. It is. Also, you know, completely unrelated to what we were talking about um, and the heist we planned to pull at the morgue, but did you get those light explosives and the stethoscope I asked for? Because, you know, just for future reference. Um, yeah, they're, they're on back order, but the super cool ninja costumes came in. Awesome. Nailed it. All right, carry on. Okay, carry on. good, good. Yeah. But, you know, it's a really great book, and, boy, I'm thinking about putting on that ninja costume now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Um, Would anybody know we were doing the show wearing our ninja costumes? No, don't tell anyone, George. They oh, can't God, see us right. in the ninja costume. No, they wouldn't do it that way. So, so. yeah, I mean, it, it was basically a surrealistic <laughs> match made in heaven between the two of them. And we, we didn't get the 100% vision of uh, Disney and Dolly, but it's great to see what they originally intended, uh, oddness at all, and just to learn more about this nice little bit of Disney history. Yeah, so anyone that really loves the history of the Disney Studios or you know, has an interest in the animation process or animation in general is really going to love this book. And this one is Dolly and Disney Destino by David Bossert. If it's a legend that you seek, come on and take a peek at the window of the week. This week's window is located in the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World, and it reads Drowding Corporation, Doug Kane, Delineator, our motto, a straight line is the first rule. Associates, Joe Kramer, George Windrum, Ron Bowman, Glenn Durflinger, Don Holmquist, Dick Klein, George Nelson. So Doug Hain was a project designer for WED Enterprises. Joe Kramer was an architect for WED Enterprises. George Windrum was in charge of the show set design for Wet Enterprises, and Ron Bowman was in charge of the architectural drafting department for Wet Enterprises. Glenn Durflinger started with Disney in 1965, leading teams of architects and engineers to design many of the most beloved attractions. He was assistant project designer for Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland and went on to become director of architecture for Epcot. Don Holmquist was an architect for Wet Enterprises. Richard Dick Klein started his architectural career at Disney by helping design Club 33 and Walton Roy's proposed New Orleans Square apartment on what was supposed to be a two-week contract. He went on to work on River Country, the Magic Kingdom's Adventureland, Epcot, and the never-built Mineral King Ski Resort. He also contributed designs for Tokyo Disneyland and Disneyland Paris. George Nelson was an architect for WED Enterprises. 
Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. Among the streets of America, on a corner, is Susie's Speed Shop, and it's just filled with automotive knickknacks, not placed there by Bob Gurr. However, I'm sure he had something to do with it. Um, <laughs> if you look closer, though, it's also filled with five-legged goats. For example, there's a photograph uh, that's in the front of the, uh, of the window that shows a garage with a car in front of it in front of a place called Wed Motors. And as we all know, not only is Wed Walt's initials, but it's also the original name of Imagineering. And there's also stacks of oil cans that are displayed the brands, quote-unquote, Clyde, Pete, and Holloway, which turn out to be names associated, obviously, with Disney history. Uh, Bill Pete was an artist involved in pretty much every Walt-era animated feature, and Sterling Holloway was a prolific voice actor whose credits include the original voice of Winnie the Pooh. But who is Clyde? Well, to get to know that, you need to, uh, to understand why the shop is called Susie's Speed Shop. And that's because it comes from Susie the Little Blue Coop, a 1952 Disney animated short. And this one short is the key to understanding the names honored here, because Sterling Holloway was a voice actor in the cartoon, which was written by Bill Pete in one of his rare outings as a writer. And Clyde, well, that is Clyde Geronimo, the director. Um, so to round this goat out, there is also a trophy for Hot Rod Best in Show, which is a familiar-looking car on the top of it, and that is, of course, a Mr. Toad car for Mr. Toad's Wild Ride to further dig the knife into our wound and turn it <laughs> that that ride is no longer at Walt Disney World. <laughs> oh, Communicore Was that too much? The... <clears throat> well, I won't say anything else. No, it wasn't too much at all. Okay. It wasn't too much at all. Just making sure. No, no, but what was too much not really, was our year of a million or so <laughs> limited time cadets. No, that totally works. <laughs> we have reached the end of our year-long celebration, and this will be our 52nd prize that we've distributed, and we would like to thank Fairy Godmother Travel for giving away 26 of them. Yes, thank it you, Teresa Corey, especially. Yes, for helping us out with that, with giving out the different prize packs. Uh, don't forget to contact them at Communicore Weekly at FairyGodmotherTravel.com to book a Disney vacation. But anyways, this year's prize pack, since it is the last one, is just going to be a Communicore Weekly year-end prize pack. Basically, it's every single stuff. episode that we've... Oh, I was going to send him every single episode we've ever recorded. You're going to put it on a, on a CD? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could. I got a ton of AOL CDs laying around. I could just put them on those, right? Oh, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, that'll work. So, um, But this is going to be a, a big prize pack that we're excited about, and we'll send it out, and more details will be coming about it. Um, but this week's prize winner for week 52 for the final one, hold your breath. I'm going to say it eventually. I'm wondering how long Jeff will hold his breath if I keep doing this. I don't know. Is he turning, is he turning blue yet? I'm colorblind. I can't tell. <laughs> you can't tell if he's turning blue. Okay. All right. So this week's winner is Jennifer S. from Eugene, Oregon. Hooray. I can breathe. And congratulations, Jennifer. <laughs> I'm surprised we have to, you, for once, we have to add the sound effect of a whooshing noise. Like oh, it, it was there. I don't think you heard it, but trust me, it was there. <laughs> I was talking too loudly. So, but we want to thank all of the cadets that entered um, had so many, close to a thousand, if not more than that, right? Uh, a yes. Lot. A, yes, a lot. There was a lot. And we only had 52 weeks, so, you know, it was pretty exciting. We were glad everybody was a part of it. And now we're just going to come over and visit everybody because we have all your addresses. <laughs> yes, we are. I don't know what <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! Hey, I mean, we're guys, here so for dinner. 
got here for dinner. <laughs> we hope we like it. Because if we don't, it'll be a really bad food report review. Yeah, sorry, guys. We haven't done a food report in a long time. So, all right. Well, speaking of a long time, we've made it to the end of another episode. And another uh, season, for that matter. That's right. The end of another season. Wow. So thank you guys so much for being part of season four and our year of a million or so limited time cadets. Yes. Um, and please leave us a comment, whether it's on iTunes, where you can leave a rating, or even if you watch the show on, on YouTube, the video version, let us know what you thought of this week's show. Yeah, please do. And email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com. And, you know, just tell us hi or say what's up or anything else like that. Anything cool. We're okay with that. And, of course, you can always like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imagineerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. You don't do say Periscope anymore. I still Periscope every once yeah, in a while. Yeah, we do, I guess, but it, sometimes it shows up on Twitter. Oh, that's too, true, you know? it does. That's a fair Yeah, point. so it comes through to your Twitter. But so follow us both on Periscope, because occasionally we do Periscope. But usually I do it from a theme park. Jeff just does it from his family room. I'm, I'm it's, wrapping it's, Christmas gifts lately, or I was. It's, it's like That's like a theme park, right? Kind of, yeah. Family room? Anyway... Uh, Give us a call and leave us a message on the Communicorically GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And make sure you get one of our amazing Communicore Weekly t-shirts, including the hat box ghost and the flushing on your own terms. I almost said that hat box flush. That would have been hilarious, actually. It's different. But you can get those at communicoreweekly.spreadshirt.com. And, of course, there is still plenty of time to get your official cadet membership card and Communicore Weekly sticker by sending a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And you can always visit patreon.com slash Weekly and learn how you can support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening to another very interesting season here on Communicore Weekly. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show.